Labor Day weekend as we've gathered together to celebrate the risen Christ. A couple of announcements. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 6. A couple of things I want to emphasize to you. Equipping studies begin next Sunday evening. If you have not already signed up for equipping studies, you can do so in the hallway. Um, back here, I say the hallway like all of y'all know what I'm talking about. If you're new here, the hallway is that hallway behind us. So, uh, um, and our equipping studies are short-term small group studies that last, uh, this time they're seven weeks. They, we do them uh, three times a year usually. They last six to eight weeks each time. This time it's a seven-week series of, of studies. There are several different options, a women's study. Uh, there's a video-driven study that walks you on a historical tour of the Holy Land. Uh, there's a study on the doctrine of the Word of God. There's a study on, uh, uh, on the, the Getty's new book, Sing, which Kevin and Deanna are leading. Uh, so uh, that's the one that, if, if I was taking one, that's the one I would take. I've already told y'all that. Uh, I'm looking forward to what they're going to be able to do through that. So I would encourage, if you haven't signed up for equipping studies, do so. In addition, since we're talking about music, um, listen, if you've ever sat out there and thought, you know what, I'd like to be a part of the music ministry, but I don't know how to get involved, uh, let me encourage you, just show up on a Wednesday night at choir practice. Kevin will be happy to have you, I, and I'm telling you that because I'm selfish. Uh, in a couple of weeks, the choir is going to be um, doing a, a song. Their, their special music is going to be right before I preach on Sunday mornings. And uh, the more y'all that sing and the louder it is, the more excited I get about preaching. So if you've ever wondered how you might be involved, I'd encourage you to speak to Kevin about that. I'm sure that Christmas stuff is starting soon, uh, which I get excited about because when Kevin starts listening to Christmas music in the office, then it gives me an excuse to start listening to Christmas music in the office. And no one can judge me. I'll just say I'm rehearsing. Finally, finally this morning, uh, if you are new to us, um, we have a Next Steps class. There's a, a lot of new faces. Our Next Steps class, our Next Next Steps class, which is sort of our get to know you. It's the, the st class that you take to figure out what it would look like to become a member of Malvern Hill and what all that means um, is on September the 16th at 4 o'clock. I'll be leading that. Um, we'll meet back here in the conference room. If you, um, if you would, it would help us out if you would sign up for that online. There's a link on our website. I'll make sure that we, that we get that prominently displayed this week just so you don't have to go look for it. And if you need child care, we can provide that. But please let us know um, because if you don't tell us, we won't just have child care available. We have child care available upon request. And we are happy to do that. It is no trouble, but just let us know so that we can make plans. Hopefully by now you've made it to Mark chapter 6. I talked for a long time so that if you had trouble finding it, you would have plenty of time. Mark chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse 53. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. Mark chapter 6, verse 53. Now you remember last week we read about Jesus walking on the water, coming to the disciples on the water in the middle of the storm. Okay? So it's on the back end of that is where we pick up in verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized them and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give us a burden to bring many more to you. 
that, Father, many, many more from within the surrounding communities of Malvern Hill Baptist Church and elsewhere would be brought in by the people of Malvern Hill to know Jesus. That, Father God, by just touching, as it were figuratively, the, the hem of Jesus, that many more would be made right with Christ. Father, work among us today through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Social media is powerful, even if it is sometimes distracting. But through social media, we can learn all kinds of things. And this week, I learned on social media that one of our college students got engaged, which is super exciting. I'm not going to tell you who it was. If you had not figured it out, you'll have to figure it out on your own. Because if I rob anybody of that joy, I will live bad, hard. But that means... So, so when recent college graduates get married, it's fun. They send out all of, their, all of their invitations, and as they send the invitations out, their invitations go to a lot of people who are like them, a lot of people who are in the same stage of life. Now, by the time that you reach 30, what am I, 37, with four children, as people are working through their, their list and they're making up their, their invitation, their guest list for the wedding, they go, all right, we want to invite Craig. But they don't even say Craig, do they? They don't even say Angela. They say, we're going to invite Craig and Angela. And they say, they have four children. We assume they'll bring them. So they mark it down as six people. They go ahead and they begin, starting from right there. But there are a lot of people when you're younger that you say, I want to invite John. And the question is, well, is John going to bring anybody or is John going to come all by himself? Because John doesn't have a significant other. I remember some of those times with some of those invitations as a young man. I remember getting those phone calls when I was a single man. Every once in a while I said, hey, could you please go with me to this wedding? I don't want to go all alone. I went with a friend once, and while I was there with her at the wedding, she introduced me to another friend of hers, and that ended up to be a really bad date later on down the line. Side note here, don't ever meet someone at a wedding when you're there with someone else, even if it is just a friend. It's just not good decorum. But the question that comes is, RSVP, and there's a little card. How many are you going to be bringing? Now, what's really fun is when that friend that you're not sure about sends back the RSVP card, and it says, John plus one. And everybody's gathering around the car going, well, who is John going to bring? Does John have somebody that we don't know about? Is John just going to run out on the day before and find some random person and say, look, there's going to be a free meal. Just put on a dress and go with me. Maybe John's going to bring his mom. Does John have a sister? Listen, well, people don't usually want to go to a wedding all by themselves. And they were often willing to call Craig Thompson and say, hey, I know that you're not that much to look at, but would you be willing to go with, this, with me to this wedding just so I don't have to go all by myself? Folks, can I tell you, you don't need to be coming to Jesus all by yourself. We should carry with us as believers some sense of shame if we consistently walk into the presence of the Lord, if we're regularly showing up at worship without our plus one. If we were to send out an RSVP card to everybody in the pews today and say, next Sunday, how many should we expect? How many of you would work diligently to find at least one more person that you could bring with you to worship so that they may have an opportunity to meet Jesus? 
Folks, listen, there is room at the banqueting table of Jesus for all. See, at the wedding, you might have to think carefully about how many you bring because you want to be careful that you don't burden the family with many, many folks who they'll have to feed. Trust me, at the banqueting table of Jesus, there's an unending supply of food and blessing. There are even streams in the desert to nourish the most weary traveler. Folks, who are you bringing to Jesus? Who are you bringing to the Lord? As we come to this passage of Scripture this morning, remember what I said. We found Jesus and the disciples having recently crossed over the sea. Jesus has come to the disciples in the middle of the night. Remember Matthew's account that many of you looked at this morning had Peter walking on the water to meet Jesus. Peter walks out there. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins to sink. But this is a monumental event In the lives of the disciples, they hadn't up to this point really grasped who Jesus was because their hearts had been hardened. But it's in this point, at this point in time, that they begin to really understand that Jesus isn't just somebody. He is everything to them. He is the Messiah that they've been hoping for. Folks, they have had the mountaintop experience of mountaintop experiences, okay? The only greater mountaintop that some of the disciples will encounter is probably the Mount of Transfiguration. Beyond the Mount of Transfiguration, there may not be a more monumental experience that the disciples have with Jesus prior to His resurrection. God takes them to the mountaintop, and then they cross the sea... And I want you to observe with me the first thing that the disciples do. These are God's ministers. There are 12 of them. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to ascend into heaven. And when he does, he is going to leave to them the ministry of his church. Folks, these are significant preachers, teachers, pastors, and missionaries in the making. And Jesus takes... His best and His brightest. And He imparts to them the deepest parts of Himself. He reveals Himself in incredible ways. They get all the way across the water. And the first thing Jesus says is, You have been anointed from on high. And you are spectacular prophets of God. Don't dirty your hands with the ordinary things of life. Is that what He said? Not at all. What does it look like for us to be in the practice of bringing people to Jesus? Folks, the first thing we've got to do is make sure we reach out in real life. Reach out in real life. Look with me what the disciples did. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat to the shore. Moored the boat. I thought I knew what that meant. But I decided I would, I would look that up in a dictionary. Because I wanted to make sure that I understood what moored the boat to the shore meant. And you know what it meant? It meant they tied the boat to the shore. They anchored the boat. Now, what does it look like to anchor the boat? They got out into the water. They waded out. They put anchors. They tied everything up. They got, guess what these fishermen did? They got sweaty and nasty and wet and grimy. Jesus took them to the mountaintop, and then he kicked them off the mountain and sent them back to real life. Folks, listen to me. Jesus takes us to the mountaintop to experience incredible opportunities with Him. Not so that we can stay there, but so that we can get back into the busyness, the realness of our regular, ordinary lives and serve Him and honor Him and bring somebody else with us the next time we go to the mountain. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain. 
And there He is revealed to them in all of His glory. There they hear God the Father speak. They meet with Moses and Elijah in their resurrected states. And Peter, James, and John get together and say, man, this place is amazing. This is where we... Jesus, how about we just build some tents and we just live here? We don't want to go anywhere else, Jesus. This is where we're going to be. And Jesus says, you can't stay here. You ain't got to go home, but you can't stay here. There is far too much work to be done. The disciples met Jesus and they got back to work. Folks, Jesus takes us to the mountain to send us back into the valley to live our very real lives among very real people doing very real things. I want you to come to Christ. But as you do, I want you to know that you don't get to quit your job. Instead, you begin to do your job with a renewed vigor, realizing that you work as unto the Lord. You work all the more diligently because the days are evil and you need to redeem the time by honoring Christ with every single minute. Part of honoring Christ is honoring Him with the mundane, ordinary experiences of life. The disciples served Jesus by putting out the anchor. Folks, how many of you, when you think about the most incredible service you can offer to the Lord, think about tying a boat up? How many of you think about that? When we think about powerful ministry, how many of us go, tying up a boat? When we think about powerful ministry, how many of us think cleaning a dirty diaper? We think about the ministry in life that matters. How many of us think that way? We all think about Billy Graham. As we should. Billy Graham, an incredible, powerful man of God, reached more people for Jesus than anyone who has ever lived. And yet, can I tell you that there's still ministry to be done in the trenches of life? Places where Billy Graham could never get and never go. Part of honoring Christ is honoring the mundane, putting out the anchor. You know, there are two dangers to be recognized when we consider what it looks like to reach out to others in real life. The first danger is for those who are gifted or passionate about proclamation or evangelistic ministry, those preachers among us and teachers, to begin to believe that the only real ministry to be done is to preach or to teach or to evangelize. In other words, there's a danger for people like me as the pastor and the preacher to forget that there is real ministry to be done in the mundane, ordinary things of life. That there's real ministry to be done in moving chairs and cleaning toilets. The other danger that must be avoided is for those who have the gifts and passions to engage in the more physical types of ministries to buy the lie that they aren't called to evangelize. So do you have the gift of preaching and teaching and evangelizing? So did Peter and all the other apostles, but they were still tying up the boat. Do you have the passion and the ability to do all these physical labors for the Lord? Fantastic. Roof churches. Clean the yards of shut-ins. Serve in soup kitchens. But even as you do, don't buy the lie that in the midst of that, you aren't also called to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it might just be that because of your gifts and abilities and talents, because of the place where God has you working, you're able to reach people that I won't ever be able to reach. I know you're going to find this hard to believe. There are some people on the planet that don't have any desire to have a conversation with a pastor. 
Okay, you don't really find that hard to believe. But trust me, there are a lot of people that see me coming and they're like, oh, okay, hey, how you doing? They find out I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, I'm busy. Have a good day. They don't want to know what's going on right here. But you know who they'll talk to? They'll talk to you. They'll listen to you. You see, a lot of people look and say, well, of course, Craig, you think that way because you're a pastor. But there's a whole lot of people that look at you and they say, well, I can't believe you would think that way. You're a welder. And yet you believe this? You're a soldier and you believe this? What's it look like for us to live in the very real things that God's called us to and still serve Him? You know, God called me to preach, but He's also called me to be an expert chair mover and stage organizer. I became a pretty decent project manager. I am an occasional toilet plunger and grass cutter. Of course, before I came here, I was a teacher, a manual laborer, and my favorite of all, a telemarketer. See, y'all just think my preaching's annoying. See, God doesn't save you to rescue you from real life. He saves you to give you eternal meaning and real life, to, ah, to give eternal meaning to your real life and to make sure that you engage in the real life enough to allow for the work of the Holy Spirit. God sends you into these places so that you can be a missionary in all the places where you go. Don't quit being a real normal person when God saves you. Be a real normal person filled up with the Holy Spirit of God. And then watch what God can do through you as you dig ditches or run marathons or play basketball or serve as a student. As you work in the PTA, as you are involved in the retirement associations, watch what happens as God uses you in those places to further his kingdom. So the first thing this morning, don't come alone. First, reach out in real life. Number two this morning, pursue your people. Pursue your people. When they had crossed over, they, they moored the boat. And when they had got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, that is Jesus, and ran about the whole region to bring sick people. Most people, listen, most people come, so, so most people come to Jesus how? As a result of some random stranger that drops off a leaflet on their front door and runs away? Do most people come to Jesus because somebody knocked on the door and stuck a post-it note on the door that said, Love Jesus, and then ran off? Did most people come to Jesus because you left one of those fake $50 bills at the, um, at the restaurant after church on a Sunday and the, the server got up and said, oh, sweet, and opened it up and said, oh, I didn't leave you any money today, just a tip that Jesus saves you. Listen, nobody ever got saved with that thing, okay? The only thing you ever did was turn somebody off to Jesus. If you have those, burn them. Don't throw them away because somebody might find them. Burn them, all right? Because the last thing we want is for somebody to be walking down the street and think they found a $50 bill and then just be disappointed. I don't want people to be disappointed when they find Jesus. Okay? Anyway, most people who come to the Lord come as a result of an interaction with a friend, a relative, associate, or neighbor. Now, statistics are difficult to prove. Okay? And about 80% of statistics are made up on the spot. It could be 79. Y'all get that later. But one statistic I read said that 93% of people who come to Jesus come to Jesus as a result of an interaction with a friend, a relative, an associate, or a neighbor. Now that does not mean that cold call evangelism isn't important. 
It doesn't mean that that door-to-door knocking is not okay and acceptable. It doesn't mean it doesn't have effectiveness. It just means that the vast majority of people who come to the Lord do so as a result of somebody who knows them, loving them enough to go to them and to communicate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. What does that mean? That means your greatest evangelistic harvest is probably the low-hanging fruit of your peer group. So as you consider what it looks like to not come along alone to Jesus, let me encourage you, pursue your people. Your people. Who are your people? Everybody's people is different, right? But you got your people. You know who they are. If I say, hey, who are your people? You know who they are. I might not know. For some of you, your people are primarily revolved around the family members that you have. Some of you don't have great relationships with your family, your, your biological family, so your people are, are a different kind of folks, right? But they're your people. They're not my people. They might not want anything to do with me, but they're your folks. Do you want to impact the world? I want to encourage you to go across the world and share the gospel with people who have never heard. But for goodness sakes, don't leave the zip code to share the gospel until you've shared it with the people right in your own backyard. One of the great questions for evangelists is this. Do I love the rush of sharing Jesus or do I love to see people come to the Lord? There's a difference right there. There is a difference, folks. There is a great joy and excitement that comes in engaging in in an evangelistic and apologetic encounter in a place like Hyde Park in London. Y'all have heard me talk about that before. And when I was engaging With Muslims in that place a few years back, it was intense. It was wild. It was crazy. It was exciting. It was invigorating. Here's the truth. Low chance that I'm going to win those people to Jesus. High chance that I'm going to have a ball when I'm doing it, though. What am I after? The experience and excitement of sharing Jesus? Or the joy of winning people to the Lord? I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes sharing the Lord with those people who are closest to me is not all that exciting because it makes me all kind of nervous. See, I don't have to get real nervous when I'm sharing Jesus with somebody I don't know because I can kind of throw Jesus at them and then run away. It's exactly what I was talking about. Knock on the door, stick a post note, run off. Well, it might not look that way when I'm sharing with that person at the gas pump, right? But they're across from me. I say, hey, anybody ever say about Jesus? And they look up like I'm crazy. No? Well, could I? Sure. And then I run off. And if they think I'm a moron, that's all right. I don't ever have to see them again. Like, I'm not going to come across them at, at the Labor Day picnic tomorrow and go, oh, no. Oh, that's the guy. Right? But the greatest opportunity I have to lead somebody to Jesus is going to be at the Labor Day picnic tomorrow. Those people that you are closest to. Folks, do you, do you, do you consider... Like, don't buy the lie. The lie the devil says, well, they won't listen to me because I'm their brother. Listen, your sister calls you every time she needs to make a significant decision in her life. Your sister wants your input when it comes to financial decisions. She wants you to help her understand how to raise her kids. She wants you to be the executor of her will. You're getting her kids if she dies, and yet somehow you bought the lie that she doesn't want to hear me about Jesus. Folks, she won't listen. She won't listen to you. She's not going to listen to anybody else. And even if she doesn't listen to you the first time, there's no other statistics that say most people need to be confronted with the gospel something like 13 times before they come to the Lord. 13 times. That means they need to hear it a whole bunch. 
Some people get saved with one, okay? It happens. Some people get confronted with the gospel, and boom, right there, the Holy Spirit of God saves them. It's amazing. For some people, it's almost like a lifetime encounter. Pursue your people. I know why most people don't do it, because when you pursue your people, it's a hardcore, long-term investment. Right? Isn't it? We have to be really invested. You have to be willing to answer all the questions over and over again. You have to be willing to endure that person that looks at you. Don't tell me about Jesus, because I know who you used to be. Who are you to tell me about Jesus? Can I tell you that most people, even those closest to you in your family, won't actually respond that way? And even for those that do, you're able to respond with grace and say you are 100% right. You of all people know how unlikely it would be for me to be having this conversation with you. But I'm here to tell you today that Jesus changed my life. Pursue your people. When they showed up on the shore, they saw Jesus. Listen, who do you think these people went and got? The people they knew. They didn't just go knock on a stranger's door and say, hey, I'm going to drag you out to see Jesus. No, Susie went and found her mom. Mom, he's here. We heard about him. He's here. We got to go. Mom says, I can't really walk there right now. Susie throws her on her back and goes. Right? The first people they went to were their closest people. Pursue your people. Number three this morning, care for the hurting. Care for the hurting. Notice here the people went out and found those who were hurting and brought them to Jesus. Those who were hurting and brought them to Jesus. Who are the outcasts, abused, and hurting in our community? Who is it who needs to come to Jesus? And you know what I mean right there. Obviously, all sinners need to come to Jesus. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But who is it that you encounter in this life on a regular basis who not only needs Jesus eternally, but they are in desperate need of immediate relief one of the things i love about our church is how our church is welcoming to families of children with special needs it's 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 a big deal i don't I, it, it, it and, and i'm excited about that it, it thrills my soul when when one of our one of our special needs kids hands me bulletins or comes up and gives me hugs like i feel like we're like that's i, I that is un like it blows my, 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 my mind. We had one of our kids, I walked in several months ago. It was the best thing that happened to me for like a week. One of our special needs kids was standing right over here at the door. I walked in. That child hands me a bulletin, and I went, whoa. Like I didn't, y'all, I was happy to see, but that was an experience that I couldn't get over. I couldn't get over it. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, right? This is what it looks like. Everybody is invited. Everybody. And it doesn't matter what you're like or what you've been through or what you were born with or without. Everybody's invited. Rich, poor, black, white, handicapped, not handicapped. Everybody is invited to the table. Folks, as the church of Jesus Christ, if we want to make an impact on the world around us, we need to look for the hurting and the outcasts and we need to go to them. Watch this. Findings from a recent study say the odds of a child with autism never attending religious services were nearly twice as high as compared to children with no chronic health conditions. The odds of never attending were also significantly higher for children with developmental delays, ADD, ADHD, learning disabilities, and behavioral disorders. 
Children with conditions that limit social interaction are often excluded from other social settings and have the greater need for a community of social support were most likely to feel, you ready, unwelcome at religious services. What in the world are we doing when the most vulnerable among us don't feel welcome at God's table? Are you kidding? We need to not only be the kind of place that welcomes them, we need to be the place that's going out and kicking the door in and saying, we want you here. You say, Craig, I don't know where there are hurting people. Open your eyes. If you can't encounter hurting people in the regular business of your life, then I want to send you all the way back up to number one and say, reach out in real life. Your real life should regularly bring you into contact with hurting people. And if it doesn't, then guess what? You are far too insulated from the world around you. We took the kids uh, out of town this weekend. I had to get up yesterday morning and, and, uh, and, and, and go, or uh, say this weekend, Friday night, got up yesterday morning and went down in, in the hotel lobby to get coffee. And I told Angela it was, it was so weird. Okay? Sorry, that wasn't very profound. It was just strange. And it was disappointing to me because I stood in line for coffee. But as I walked about 7.30, she wouldn't let me move before 7.30 because she was afraid I'd wake the children up. I've been laying in bed like this for like an hour. And she's going, don't you move. I'm like, ah! And, and so I'm, I'm, I go down the hall, and, and this hotel, all the lights were still dim. It looks on the inside like a, like a, like a, a rustic kind of cabin, like I'm, I'm in the mountains. Everything's decorated in, in these darker colors. It leads me to think like it's fall. It's about... It's a nice 68 degrees. I wander down the hallway and there's coffee and it's making and I look around and I feel like I'm in this rustic mountain setting. Everybody's quiet. There's all these sleepy-faced adults who are standing around waiting on their coffee. All their children are back somewhere being grimy. Everybody's like, good morning. I'm like, oh, good morning to you. And then to make it worse, the donut place said, would you like pumpkin? I was like, oh, the fall has arrived, except it's a lie. It's a lie that Starbucks is telling you. There is no fall. It's still 180 degrees in Camden, South Carolina. <laughs> so I told Angela, I got back to the room, and I had a little box of donut holes, and I looked like world's greatest dad. I had coffee for me and Angela. I had donuts for the kids. And in I walk, and I said, you know, this is great, until I opened the window right there, and I realized that we're not in the mountains we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it's 197 degrees out there, and we're parked beside an interstate. <laughs> You're wondering what in the world that has to do with the sermon. A lot of us can live lives so insulated that we forget that we're, lit, that we're parked beside an interstate. And it's 187 degrees out there. We surround ourselves with things that make us feel comfortable and allow us to forget the world outside of us. We hang out in our back porches with big fences and forget about the front yard where we might actually encounter a neighbor who's having a tough time. You don't know about that widower that lives up the street from you that gets out and walks a mile and a half every single day at 93 years old because you've never been willing to actually venture outside of your fence and to consider that that man may be lonely and need interaction from God's people. That's right. We don't know about hurting people because we don't want to know about hurting people. Consider some of these statistics. 
Cigna reports that 46% of Americans felt lonely, sometimes or always. You say, eh, sometimes that doesn't really work, so let's keep going. 47% feel left out. 43% feel their relationships aren't meaningful. 43% of Americans don't have a meaningful relationship. 43% feel isolated from others. Nearly one in five feels like they don't have anyone they can talk to. So I'll tell you what, let's step away from that 47% of people who sometimes are always, let's go all the way to one in five. Today, if you encounter 100 people, 20 of them will feel like they don't have anybody in their life that they can actually talk to. Nobody will listen to them, nobody they can confide in. They are lonely people. How about this recent study? Loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, making it even more dangerous than obesity. You want to know where we as the church can find hurting people who are in desperate need of the gospel? Yes, consider the families who have special needs children who feel like they're on an island all by themselves because they have been neglected, they've been ignored. Think about it. Those of us that don't have those struggles don't understand what it's like for that to feel like your child is a burden in somebody's way or to feel like you have to apologize, feel like you're just in the way. And what are we as a church doing? Have we actually gone and said, what can we do to make you comfortable? How do we help you? How do we get involved in your life? Well, that's just one segment of our society. What about the prisoner? What about the previous offenders who have been released? What about the homeless? What about the divorced, the widowed, and the orphan? I'm going to tell you something. Those widows and widowers are lonely. And those that don't have a church home are doubly lonely. And those that don't have Jesus are lonely for all of eternity. And we have hope. We have it we got to be out, going. So we, how do we bring somebody to Jesus? We reach out in real life. We pursue our people. We care for the hurting. And then finally this morning, we seek the Lord. Look at this. The Bible says they went and they found all these hurting people. They brought them to Jesus wherever he came in villages and cities or countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces. Then watch. And implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. They implored Jesus. They begged him. They asked him, what do you do when you've done all else? You recognize that you haven't done the most important thing until you have sought Jesus. You seek him now and you keep on seeking him. When you think about your friends and relatives and associates and neighbors, when you think about the clerk at the drugstore, the clerk at the gas station, when you think about the server at the restaurant, when you think about your kid's coach, you think about all those people who need Jesus, we begin by imploring Jesus. And we keep on imploring Jesus. All of our efforts at sharing the gospel must begin with Jesus. If it seems like this last point is one that we obsess over around here, it is for good reason. Without Jesus, we don't have a chance. And when it seems as if all hope is lost, Jesus is our only chance. George Mueller ran an orphanage in London in the 1800s. Um, George Mueller's famous for having never asked anyone for material contributions to that orphanage. Instead, he prayed for the Lord to provide. 
man of incredible prayer. The stories of George Mueller blow your mind. They didn't have milk in the orphanage once. George Mueller began to pray that the Lord would provide, and the milk truck broke down in front of the orphanage. This is the 1800s. They don't have refrigerators. They had to drink it. So all of the milk came into the orphanage. So I said, George, what do you, what, Mr. Mueller, what do you do? He said, I don't ask men for anything. Instead, I ask God, and he will tell men. Folks, when's the last time that you beat on the door of heaven and you ask God to save somebody you loved? When's the last time? For those in your family who need Jesus, sharing the gospel with them is the second most important conversation. Begging Jesus to save them is the most important conversation. Folks, until we have asked Jesus, we've not really begun the work of missions and ministry and evangelism. Because on our own, in our own strength, and in our own ability, we can't save anybody. But Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, convicts of sin and draws sinners unto Himself and saves them. So where in the world are we going with all this? We bring it this point today. As God's children, we have a responsibility to not come to Jesus alone. You see, the reality is you can go to a wedding all by yourself. And the truth is nobody's judging you. Something inside of us always leads us to believe that if we're there, then somebody's going to look at us. Well, nobody's judging you. Go! Have a good time! But would you please stop coming to Jesus empty-handed? It's time that we got busy finding people who are hurting and hungry and lonely and in need of a Savior and bringing them to Jesus. In my notes... This week, in big letters, I wrote, don't focus on guilt. Because, see, I can get into these sermons, and it can be real tempting for me just to beat you all over the head with something. But here's what I know. I can beat you up, and you'll leave here bloodied and bruised, but you won't come with anybody next week. So we're going to close by painting a little picture. And I want you to consider how it is that you fit into this picture this morning. The disciples have just encountered Jesus walking to them across the water. He gets into the boat. They go, what in the world is going on? Jesus is a Descartes, it's me, don't be afraid. Peter's just gotten the object lesson of a life. Right? Oh, no, Peter, don't look at the waves, you look at me. They go on across and they begin to certainly imagine what it's going to look like to inherit this kingdom that Jesus is giving to them. And they get to the other side and Jesus says, who's going to get out and... Anchor the boat. Now, knowing what we know about the disciples, especially in light of how things are going to go at the Last Supper, we know that they're not the kind of people who are fighting with one another to get to serve the other. It almost makes you wonder if Jesus had to jump out into the water first and then the rest of them kind of followed him. I don't know. But knowing that nobody wanted to wash anybody's feet at the Last Supper, it's possible that when it says that they moored the boat, that Jesus was the first one over the side. All of a sudden, Jesus is not walking on the water. He's sinking in deep mud. He's getting everything done. And Peter goes, man, what in the world have we done? He's, of course, running his mouth because that's what Peter does the best. Thomas is asking all sorts of questions. Well, why would Jesus jump over the side? If Jesus can walk on the water, why didn't he just walk across the water and drag us to the, to the, to the land? You see, that's how some of you approach Jesus. You're still sitting there wondering, well, if Jesus could stop evil, why didn't he stop evil? If Jesus could do this, why didn't Jesus do that? And at some point, the rest of them go, you know what, forget it, Thomas, just let's go. They jump out of the boat, they get it all tied up. 
They walk up on the shore. Now remember, in the last pericope, in the last section of Scripture, the Bible says that the people recognized them. They recognized the disciples. And they were flocking to the disciples. And 5,000 of them show up. And Jesus puts the disciples back in the boat to make sure that they don't mess anything up. And he handles his business. But here the Bible says they recognized him. The people saw Jesus. And when they saw Jesus, they didn't just run up and go, Oh, Jesus, let me worship you and be in your presence forever. They saw Jesus, and deep in their heart, they went, Oh, my goodness. I know somebody who needs to meet him. See, this is the greatest news they could have ever hoped for or imagined. He has come. He's here. And they begin to run out into all the places they could find. Why? Because they had heard of what Jesus had done, but now they see him. You see, these people knew what Jesus was capable of. And knowing what Jesus was capable of, they couldn't contain themselves. We talked last week about the awe and excitement of a kid. It's great, isn't it? They get so jacked up. These people saw Jesus. They didn't know what in the world to do. Maybe they were so overstimulated, they just started running in circles, and then all of a sudden it clicked. I got to go get Mama. I got to go get Jenny. I got to go get Mary. They've got to get here. They go, but how in the world am I going to get them here? They can't come. They won't come. Somebody says, you know what? If I have to drag them to get them here, I'm going to get them here. And so there they came, limping, walking, being drug along. Maybe there was somebody on a sick bed that said, don't bother him. I've been like this forever. Maybe there was somebody that said, I can't change. And there was a loved one that said, I don't care what you think. I've seen what he can do. And they kept dragging. And they got there and they said, Jesus, they don't believe. Would you just come here? Would you come closer, Lord? Lord, I've done all I can do. I'm wore out. Would you come closer? God, I can't get them to you. Would you come to them? I drug them as far as I could. Jesus, can you just, can you go? Can I tell you this? He's willing. And he's able. So my question to you this morning, who are you bringing to Jesus? Who are you bringing to Jesus? And once you've done all you can do, how are you begging Jesus? And finally this morning, who drug you here? Some of you aren't here necessarily because you wanted to be. You just kind of ended up here. Why are you here? Can I tell you? You're here because as many as touched him were made well. Today can be the day of your salvation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, would you come forward today when we stand up and sing? Would you let me introduce you to Jesus so that you can be made well? 
Some of you this morning, though, you need to come and you need to fill these altars with the prayers of God's people. Bowing down and saying, Lord God, I've done all I know to do. Would you come? Would you save? Would you save my coworker? Would you save my daughter? My grandson? My grandfather? Lord God, would you take my alcoholic daddy and do something with him? Because I don't know what in the world to do. God, I can't even hardly love him right now. Would you do something? They implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. Would you come this morning? Come implore Jesus. Come beg him. Come receive him. He's ready. Stand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, I pray that your word would be powerful among us today. Pray that you would work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we sing this morning, would you come? Would you respond as the Lord calls you? Just as I am. Just as I am.